Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Canaan STL podcast, where we exist to connect you to what matters most, to God, people, and purpose. This is Pastor Martin Winslow. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit different. We are going to play for you um, some audio that was taken from last Sunday night, where Stuart Dace and myself were talking about post-millennialism. Now, you all know we've been doing a series on eschatology for quite some time recently, and we had went through each of the four views. We started with premillennial dispensationalism. We moved on to historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and then finally postmillennialism. And then on Sunday evenings, Daniel and I had been sharing a little bit more in depth about each of those views. So this past Sunday night, this was recorded, and uh, we hope you enjoy hearing from Stuart and myself on what post-millennialism is. Well, hello, everybody. I hope you're doing great tonight. Um, you all know me, and uh, but you may not know uh, Stuart Day. Stuart is a good friend of mine, and Stuart pastored over here at Exchange Church for how, how many years were you there, Stuart? Seven years. And, um, and then for the last, uh, he's working on two years, has become the head of school for Victory Christian Academy, which works uh, which meets right here at our church. And um, so he works with students uh, every day, and uh, he's just a good friend of mine. And he knows the word very well. And so I asked him uh, today to come up as we kind of finish out the four views. We started with premillennial dispensationalism. We moved on to historic premillennialism on last week to amillennialism. And this week, we move on to postmillennialism. Next week is pan-millennialism, okay? It all pans out in the end, right? Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about post-millennialism, but first, you know, Stuart, why don't you just tell everybody just a little bit about maybe like your journey. I mean, you pastored, you've been through seminary and college and Bible school. Kind of what has been, I'm just interested, how has your view, or, or maybe you're the same as you've always been. I don't, I, I actually know, but maybe they don't know. Baptist churches, you know, my whole life, I somewhat jokingly say I was Baptist before I was saved, okay? Uh, It's a joke, but anyways. Um, They will warm up to you. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, You know, certainly grew up uh, thinking and believing and sitting under preaching and teaching that was uh, dispensational premillennial and uh, never really questioned it for for quite a long time. Um, After, uh, when I was in my mid-20s, really solidified, God really solidified the call to ministry, and I went to seminary, and um, I started to, you know, explore different views at that point, and um, probably, uh, you know, around that time, I kind of settled in what has been described as historical premillennialism. So the same as Pastor Daniel. Yes, yeah. Okay. That's, um, that's a valid view. Right. Yeah. So I think, um, obviously, there, there's some overlap with, with dispensationalism. And um, how, how I arrived at that uh, view was um, Romans 11, believing Gentiles grafted into uh, believing Jews, one people of God. Yeah. Yeah. One people, God was how I, is where I uh, is really what started me to, to and, and I and I say this knowing that there are there are still there are very well respected godly believing scholars who who defend dispensationalism. It's sure. just that's just kind of that's where I was. Um, the I always think of John MacArthur when I think absolutely of and love John yeah, MacArthur. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so that was, you know, where I sort of what had moved me to the uh, historical um, premillennial zone. Um, but even, are you still there? Well, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know since and, and really even so uh, since starting this uh, discussion, but you know, we've been having some conversations for a while now. I'm probably more open than I than I ever have been, and I think there are some compelling arguments for uh, amillennialism and even post-millennialism. I'm actually looking forward to tonight because I think my experience in the past with discussions regarding eschatology has been like post-millennialism has been sort of like shoved into the corner as sort of like, yeah. well, you know, like nobody believes that. Right. But historically, um, that's just, that's not true. Yeah. That historically, that's, that's not true. I mean, the Puritans, um, many of the reformers, um, yeah. And the you know and the and the century you know in the decades and century after Martin Luther and and John Calvin. And of course, I think probably one of the most famous post um, post mill guys from the uh, first Great Awakening is Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, which absolutely. Was yep. an incredible. I think style even the Whitfields, both both yeah. Whitfield brothers, yeah. uh, as far as I understand, were were post mill. Yeah. So there certainly is that historical precedence um, there to which I think we need to wrestle with it as a um, as interpretation of of the end times. Yeah, and it's pretty straightforward. I listened to a scholar uh, just earlier today, and I was I was listening to him. He was talking about amillennialism, actually not postmillennialism, but he was doing a great job with the amill position. And he said that if you're in a room with a postmillennial and an amillennial person who are talking about end times, it might take you five or six minutes before you figure out that there's any differences between the view. So when they look at what God has done in history, beginning with uh, the cross and with the kingdom of God being inaugurated through Jesus Christ and after the resurrection, Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go. In fact, Douglas Wilson says something about that verse I think is quite interesting. He says, if you just go, you're in sin. You must therefore go. <laughs> What's the therefore, therefore? Because all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth, that's the authority with which the church Goes. Just say we go. Yeah. We go in in light of that. In light of yes. that authority, it's the Lord's authority that sends us. Right. Right. And and so tonight we're talking about the post millennial view. Now, would you say you're post millennial at this um, point? No, not not okay. at this point. No. So just know that we're we're talking about a view. He he is not post mill yet, but I I am post mill now. I think you're kind of. Are you in the waffling zone between? Uh, I'm just, I'm kind of waffling all over the place right now. Okay. I, I think I, I, you know just in our our conversations. I think yeah. there's um, some pretty comp- well. So if you look at like what is similar between amillennialism and postmillennialism, yeah, we kind of discussed that. We don't really like the term amillennial because no, it sounds like we good. are. It sounds almost like we are disregarding the millennial. We're not. not. True. But I yeah. think both of those have in common is that the millennium that's in Revelation 20 is taking place between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord. And it's not something that happens after the Lord returns. Right. And and so for those of you tonight who may be uh, premillennial dispensation and not familiar with this view, with the amill or the post-mill view, you've got to think of it this way. And here's what's always helped me through the years is to get into the shoes of these very well-respected people from these views and try to understand what they're saying. And sometimes that can be hard because you've been in one way of thinking for so long, but it's really helpful to kind of back up and say, okay, let me run down this track. I know there's four views we consider orthodox within the church as it relates to the millennium. Let me go ahead and put those shoes on and run down this track and try 
to stay with them to see if maybe, just maybe, they have uh, an interesting view that I, I may grab some things from that and, and integrate within uh, my system. Now, I will tell you this, when you look at post-millennials and amillennial, those viewpoints, you've got to understand one thing that's really critical and important. What is the first gospel written in the New Testament? The gospel of Matthew, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, in the gospel of Matthew, there's this talk beginning with, right, at the very beginning, there's a genealogy of Jesus connecting him back to David. He is the son of God. He is the second Samuel chapter seven, forever king, the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the king. And then when you begin to read Matthew, 32 times you're going to see the word kingdom used. When you get to Mark, you're going to see it used 15 more times, beginning in chapter 1, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand in Mark 1. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's this inauguration of Jesus that is already beginning in the mindset of a post and an mill. He's David's forever king, and we don't have to wait for this future kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? In a millennium in the future, the belief of the post and the mill is those things are inaugurated with the coming of Christ, and they come to fulfillment and fruition through his death for our sins and his resurrection, which conquers the grave and death. So you hit upon, yeah. so you hit upon something that really people from all views wrestle with, which is the idea that the kingdom is both here, right. but the fullness of the kingdom is not yet. Right. And so, it, but these different views attempt, attempt to yeah. interpret that reality that the kingdom is breaking in right. through the cross, through the resurrection, yeah. and in the hearts of believers. And now it's like, but it's still the fullness is yet to come. So if you, yeah. so we would say that amillennialism and postmillennialism, both of those would say that the millennial period is between the first and second coming of Christ. You got it. So how yeah. would you then distinguish? Like yeah. what's the, that's, what's the main sort of like, mm-hmm. what's, what's the, the main thing, the main idea about postmillennialism mm-hmm. that distinguishes it from amillennialism? Yeah, great question. Why don't we go ahead and put the chart up and we can, we'll walk through that a little bit together here. Um, I think we probably have that chart first, don't we? Yeah, here we go. Okay. So postmillennialism is the belief that the second coming of Christ will occur after the millennium. A period of great tribulation may precede the millennium. Now, I don't know, you know, there's, there's, there's some nuances here. Um, within the position, and you'll find that within all the positions. You know, you've got, you know, mid-trib, post-trib, all of its trib, right? You, you've got all these different, well, it's the same way within the post-millennial view, and so I'm going to probably, we'll probably more like uh, head in a strand or a sliver that we like the best, that we think works the best exegetically with the Bible, but I would say probably the big difference between post and amil is your your vision for the future and how the kingdom moves forth in the world. Okay. And let's, right. let's parse that out. Yeah. So in amillennialism, I think there's, there's maybe some similarities with even premillennialism, which would generally hold that the, the world is going to get worse right. leading up to the return of Christ. Yeah. But in postmillennialism, it would say that the world is actually because of the reign of Christ in the hearts of believers and in and in not just I mean in the 
and through the governments and of the world and those kinds of things, that things actually get better and the world becomes increasingly evangelized right. up to the point of the return of Christ to where the vast majority of people will be saved. Yeah, on the earth yeah. will be evangelized right. and saved. So I actually, I'm just going to tell you, as a post-mill, I, I reject this chart. I don't actually like this chart as a post-millennial, okay? That may be why Daniel snuck it in here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think he just took this out of some charts. But I actually think the millennium is something that is going on right now, which within the post-mill, it's, it's not something that is future. If you notice, it says here, after a tribulation period that there will be a millennium. I actually think that we're in the millennium, and it's, and it's growing and getting better uh, all the time. It was funny, um, Doug Wilson said one time, it was interesting. He said, well, all these people are like, well, wait a minute, look at the world. Look how bad things are in the world. And, you know, you watch the nightly news and you see that this, you know, that, that there's war in Ukraine and there's all this bad stuff going on. And he said, and, and as you're sitting there, you're, you're in your lazy boy with your iced tea watching your 75 inch plasma TV. And then when you run out of tea, you, you move your lazy boy up and you kick your feet down and you just, you yell in the, in the, in the bedroom to your wife about how terrible the world is as you go back and refill your cup of your cold iced tea. And then you go back and sit down in your lazy boy. Do you catch where I'm going with this? Worse than what? Worse than what in history? Like we have seen some advancements and this is the post mill kind of belief is like, if you got to, if you got to break up the world into, let's say four sections over the last uh, 2000 years since the coming of Christ, would you want to go back to 1500? Would you want to go back to 1000? What about 500? Or let's say the early church. We'd probably all fly that plane to today. Like there's been advancement. And if you look at the world and what's going on through Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible translators with the ability through the internet to find out where these little unreached people groups are as the gospel goes forth and we can target specific areas. In fact, our church is doing this. There's a lot of stuff you all don't know about that we're a part of that are, are pretty cool. Like we're sending out these films through satellites to different places in the world where people can open it up on WhatsApp and watch it in the bush and watch stories about Jesus are we more, are we better now at evangelizing the world than we've ever been? Yeah. And so the post mill sees kind of this idea of when Jesus talks about and he uses parables and he talks about the kingdom of God. Come, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And what happens with the mustard seed? Well, right? it, it grows until it, 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 to a full grown tree and there's birds nesting in it. Yes. And it's, in, it's, a, it's, this, it's a picture of the, of the kingdom which starts off small and right. it covers, you know, eventually the whole earth. But do trees grow fast? No, they right? don't. Absolutely not. Right. And and, it, and he also pictures it as the kingdom of God is like leaven. Yes. And and so it takes time. So the post-mill mindset, again, I'm just trying to get you in the mindset. Is, it's, a gra- it's a gradualism it's a of, the, gradual. of the kingdom. Yes. Yeah. And so I think, you know, he hit upon something too, is that from our uh, American perspective, secularism, there there is an undeniable sort of moral decline that is happening. I mean, you know, rather rapidly, right in this very moment. Right. And so it's it's maybe tempting to to say like, well, everything's you know things are are getting really bad right now. How can they things possibly getting worse? Um, but when you put it into the perspective of history, especially since um, since Christ yeah. and the cross, which radically changed history, 
Um, it puts things in, in it, that now that in and of itself is not necessarily a, an argument, for sure. but it puts things into perspective. It's sort of like, so where we can kind of get in that mind, get inside that mindset to start to think, okay, now we can analyze it, you know, biblically and not let our, um, our present experiences sort of drive our right. exegesis. But if you, if you look at, let's say you look at the four views and you lay them out here, historic pre-mill, you've got pre-mill disp, you've got a-mill and post-mill, okay? You're the head of a school, of a Christian school, that can openly declare the gospel, okay? Now, if you took those views, which view would you be living in? Which view do you feel like most reflects how you view the world and how you live out the world? And then why? I mean, seriously. Are you setting me up here? (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, so like... why do you do what you do? No, right, so from from my perspective as as a... Christian school administrator, like I, I want to think that I can make a real impact. Like I can train up student missionaries who are going to go out into the world yeah. and make a real impact for a key. I make, I mean, certainly, yes, they're going to be evangelizing, but they're going to be in institutions. They're going to be in their places of employment and they're going to be making an impact for, uh, for the kingdom. So I would say, yes, that post-millennialism is conducive to the task of of Christian education in the in the very formal sense of like you know we're gonna uh, uh, you know in a very distinct Christian education right yeah. and and I would say kind of the post mill mindset too is and and think of it now th- their view as they look at the future is that the mustard seed view that it continues to grow the influence of the gospel wherever that's at in the workplace education it doesn't matter where it is and so the post mill mindset is. We need to, as believers, take dominion in these areas. In government, we need more senators that are Christian. Can I get an amen? We need more congressmen that are believers. And along we, those, yeah, yeah, along those I mean, lines, I would say, so my task as, as an administrator in a Christian school is not, though this is very important, this is a very important component, is not just mere sort of like we want to shelter these kids from all the bad things in the world. Okay, that's cert- that, that's part of it, and we're not we don't need to be like pretend like that's not a component of it or be uh, be ashamed of that. So that's sort of the this, that's the so-called quote negative aspect of it. But there's a positive aspect of it too, is that we want to disciple uh, young men and women who are culture shapers. Right. Yeah. And and that's kind of the dominion mindset of a post mill. Even though yeah. you may not be in that camp, right. I would say that's how. That's how mm-hmm. you're living. And how all Christians should at least live as they think about the future is to live in such a way that we're not just waiting for Jesus to come back at any moment, but we're leveraging all of our gifts. We're leveraging our money. We're leveraging our time to take dominion in these areas as Christians so that we can be shapers and influencers in culture. That's probably why my whole life, as long as I'm alive, at some level, I'll be in, I will be a part of children's ministry. It's... I'm, I'm, you know, I've been in it for over 20 years now, and I'm, I'm not the same as I was when I began, as far as like energy levels and those kind of things, and some of the, you know, there's a, but I'll always be a part of it because I believe that they are the future, and they have to be invested in rightly. So the post mill mindset again doesn't pull out of culture, but instead it engages culture where it thinks that culture can be shaped by the gospel. And I'm just mentioning education because he teaches there, but I'm just saying like it could be in any area. Does that make sense in society? Uh, Your jobs, where you work, where you're plugged in, that you are shaping those for the kingdom because you have a firm belief as a post mill that the world, that the gospel is effective and that it can change any heart of any sinner. 
anywhere, anytime. Does that make sense? I kind of like the optimism behind it. Yeah, that. I love the optimism. So my big question, big question, I may be jumping ahead though, is, yeah. is it biblical? I think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so right. let's, yeah. so, so where is all this madness? I hate to read Revelation 20 again. Where does it all stem from? And again, it, it stems from that Revelation 20 and I, by, So, and, Yeah, I don't know if that's quite where I land, but I think there are, there are some compelling biblical arguments. Yeah. yeah. And well, let's look at those. Let's go ahead and look at those. Yeah. Um, if, if you remember just a quick rundown, I go ahead and go to the, is there another slide? Maybe there's something better than this. Keep going. Yeah, just get rid of that. I, I don't, we don't need that. Okay, let's move on. So there are some good biblical arguments, I think. Um, I, I asked you all, let's see if you remember something from last week. What is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? What is it? I heard Psalm, which is correct. Psalm. No. 110. 110, 1 and 2. So let's, let's just start there and kind of look at it. It's a messianic psalm, and it's, it's a psalm that is really kind of weird because the psalm talks about a priest and a king. I mentioned this last time. What tribes do the priests come out of? What tribe do the kings come out of? What tribe did Jesus come out of? But is he not the perfect high priest? Of course, right? That's what Hebrews says about him. So Jesus is an anomaly. He's this king-priest figure that the Jews, when they read Psalm 110, were confused about. How can a king be a priest and a priest be a king? Well, that can't happen unless you have the Son of God, right, who's perfect uh, in all his ways and ends up being the perfect high priest. Psalm 110.1 says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. So this is David speaking. So this is what Yahweh says to Yahweh. This is what the Lord says to his Lord. So there's two different usages yeah. of the word. The, the word Lord that's translated English yeah. is two different words in the, in the Hebrew. Yes. So it's and, Yahweh Lord says to my Lord, who is, in this case, would be the Messiah. Exactly. Yes. Okay. yes, to David's Lord. Okay. And Jesus is going to use this in Matthew chapter 22 in the New Testament to shut down the scribes and the Pharisees with an argument. But the Lord says to my Lord. Now, now remember, is Jesus the son of David? He's the son of David, right? And Jesus is going to ask this question later to the scribes and Pharisees. If, if, if David called his son Lord, how can, be, how can he be his son and his Lord at the same time? And the Pharisees all went quiet. Jesus is not only the son of David, but he's also the Lord of David that this passage is talking about. And the Pharisees were like, they, they had nothing to say. They had no, that was they, actually, they were caught. Yes, yeah. that was the last argument that Jesus uses in the New Testament, and they're quiet after that point. They just are like, okay, we're going to have to crucify him, okay? The Lord said to my Lord, look at it, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Now, again, that's the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Now, when did this happen? That's, I guess that would be the next question. So if you're, so if you're pre-mill, or you're, yeah. you're understanding how, when this happens, that this happens in it, well... Um, it have to be a future millennium. Yeah, after the, after the millennium, when 
but if you are on mill or post mill, well, if you're if you're post mill, what 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 would you say? This is when yeah, is this happening? If, if you're post mill, it would be when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he sat down next to his Father. Um, there's a promise that uh, as the as things get better and as the evangelization of the world happens that all the enemies of Christ will be made his footstool. And at the last day when Christ returns, the last enemy to be defeated is death, right? So, so, you're, what, so you're saying at, this yeah. right here, what it's describing is, is, not, a, is not a mere future event. Right. This is ongoing right now. Yes, okay. and I think the apostles... And that's, course, that's under the yes. post-millennial understanding. Yeah, okay. post-mill, and I would say the amillennial understanding as well, is that Jesus is king now. Yes, Right. He's king now. And and again, you've got to think about the millennium, right? This is the time period where Christ rules and reigns. And you've got to go back to Matthew 28, that famous passage. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what Jesus said in his resurrection, therefore, go. So and that's, if he's it's got interesting, all authority, though, it's significant how can he, he says more? all authority in yeah. heaven and on, on, earth. on earth. That's significant right. to, this, to this understanding is that he is, yes. as we see here, that yes. he is uh, reigning are ruling in the midst of his, his enemies. enemies. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what we would say. And a perfect example of that is like, um, oh, I, I heard this illustration once used about this commander in the, in the military that, you know, this general, he's, he's there with his men and uh, the scouts come in and, and they tell him, general, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in trouble. They're, they're all surrounding us from every angle. Where there's, there's no way... Uh, for us to get out of this situation. And, and they're, they're from all angles. They're just around us and surrounded us. And the general said, well, they can't get away from us now, right? And, and the Christian understanding is, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. There's no way for the believer to lose. Does that make sense? Because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, the second death cannot touch us. We're immune to that. We've been brought to life through the preaching of the gospel. And if I get killed right now, it does not matter. The second death cannot touch me because I belong to Jesus. And so there's this belief in the post-millennial viewpoint that we only win from here forward. But as the gospel is heralded, until all of his enemies become a footstool for his feet, he is truly king now. And I want to look at another passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Most famous passage... um, well, most famous chapter on resurrection in the New Testament, uh, it's actually the longest chapter that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about resurrection. But there's a little section in there that makes allusion to this that I want to go ahead and read. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Actually, why don't you read that, uh, if you don't mind? Yeah, where do, where do you start? Uh, 24? Well, i got to put on 20, my glasses. I've got to keep these glasses on, man. May 20, verse 20. Probably verse 20, I would yeah, I think. Yeah, I think if it's 20 through 28, maybe. Yeah, beginning yeah. with verse 20. Okay, yeah. yeah, let's start with verse 20. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so, so just to kind of break this little down in, in sections here, so he's going back to the resurrection of Jesus, who is the first fruits of those who are dead. So there's a future time, right? First Thessalonians 4, when Christ returns and the dead in Christ 
rise. He's the first fruits of that. We know we'll have a body like him in the future. That's what he's saying. So he's jumping ahead. He's saying, well, the resurrection happened. Now in the future, when he returns, the bodies of the saints will come up and they'll be like him. He's the first fruits, okay? So we died in Adam, but we'll be made alive in Christ. Go ahead. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay, so those at his coming. Now, according to the post-mill belief, when would that be? Those at his coming. Well, that would be at the end of the millennium. Yes. Yes. The end of the millennium. Which which is ongoing now. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 And then verse 24, it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay. So there's a, there yeah. is, in this, but there's an allusion back to Psalm 110. Yeah. There's not a direct quotation. There's an allusion of him, all his enemies being made his footstool, being subjected under his power. Right. And you're seeing, what I'm saying is you're seeing a timeline here, right? You're seeing the first fruits, Jesus' resurrection, we know will be made alive in him. He's going to return, and after he returns, then comes the end, it says. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power. Go ahead. So I would say in this next verse, yep. um, you know, I said I'm not, not quite convinced of a post millennial, but I would say this, this verse in light of Psalm 110 is, yep. it's compel- it is somewhat compelling. we got rest. So anyways, verse 25, it says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So I think what is what we maybe need to rest with is this idea that his his rule is not a future event, a sort of cataclysm where the kingdom is breaking in, but it's reigning. It's this idea that he's reigning and there's a gradual yes. um, expansion of the kingdom. And I think something to point out here too that I think is very important to understand, and this is where uh, uh, the premillennial positions would contrast with the on post is this, the binding of Satan, okay? So in the premillennial view, Satan, when he's bound, is incarcerated in such a way during a millennial period in the future that he cannot do anything at all, okay? The amillennial and the postmillennial don't believe that. They believe that Jesus began to rule and reign And that was inaugurated with the preaching of the gospel in his resurrection. But they also believe that Satan is slowly, like the leaven working through the loaf, like the mustard seed growing into this big tree, is gradually overtaking the world until all rule and authority and power are abolished. Does that make sense? So it's not all at once with the binding of Satan completely and totally. They believe... It's happening slowly over time as the gospel evangelizes the world. Yeah, and I, would, and I would say understanding the binding of Satan not in such either-or terms was um, at least in part why I probably sort of am maybe emerging out of that pre-millennial view. And like an illustration I share with you too is like you think about like a, uh, like a mob boss who's incarcerated. Does that, does that gangster, that boss still have influence? Right. It may in a limited way, but not the same amount of influence if he's he's free. Right. So I sort of think, okay, there's I think there's a sense in which Satan can exercise some influence even though he's bound. He's bound in such a way that the gospel still goes out to the nations. Yeah. 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 Which yes. is still an omelingal view as well. Yes, yes, that's uh and post. But if you notice here, the last enemy to be abolished is death, right? Right. And verse twenty seven, go ahead. 
so the last man to be destroyed is yet, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, ex- he is accepted who put all things and subjected under him. So, so again, there's this idea that it's a slow progression, that Satan is bound. That doesn't mean he doesn't do anything. That just means he cannot stop the moving forth of the gospel. Which would, is contrary yeah. to, um, to ancient times before Christ, right. in which the knowledge of the one true God was limited to Israel. Yeah. But now, yeah, right. But now the gospel is going to to all you know the, the, the ends of the earth. Yep, yes. the ends of the earth. Yeah, okay. you don't see that before the cross, right? Before the cross, you see Israel is kind of a people group that are just they're doing their own thing. Now there were Gentiles who were part of that, but if you remember the schema as it related to the temple was you had this Gentile court way out here, right? They were called the far off ones in the New Testament. Then you had the court of the women, the Jewish women, then the court of the men, then the court of the priests, then you had the priests that were serving. And the closer you got to God, what you saw is the valuable items that were in the temple got more and more valuable. And then when you get into the Holy of Holies, the high priest only goes in there one time a year, right? But what happens when Jesus is crucified to the veil of the temple? It's torn in two, right? And the gospel is opened to the nations. And that's the idea of post and awe is now it, it moves from this little exclusive group to Israel being redefined as the people of God. There's a spiritual Israel. There's a grafting in of the nations, right? These wild branches into this one new tree, which is called the church. Okay, now... Now listen, here's the deal with it. With a discussion like this, it just takes so long because you all have questions about 666 and the mark of the beast and all the stuff. Well, like, can, in we, the, can we pause we, there for yeah, just a Yeah, we need to do it so though. Who, so, okay. Yeah. So who's, who's the Antichrist? What is the mark of the beast? What is all that? What, the time, when, what is, how does that fit into this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- those, are, those are questions that it takes a little while to kind of parse each one of those pieces out. But, but we have a problem, right? We, we, have, we have somebody called Antichrist, um, we have somebody called Beast, and we've got somebody called Son of Lawlessness. You know, this, this Son of Lawlessness is out of Second Thessalonians 2, this Beast is out of Revelation 13, and this Antichrist comes out of 1 John, okay? But they're not, Antichrist is never used in Revelation, right? Um, but I, I will say, so the man of lawlessness, this mentioned, that's... Um, for me, that that's a little bit of a, of a sticking point right yeah. now. Just just uh, of right. trying to understand, right? You know, because I'm like, because this sounds a lot like like the Antichrist, and Paul yeah. is writing about this man of lawlessness who's maybe yes. the Antichrist that's coming in the future. Though, yes, most uh, millennial postman would if you understand the Antichrist was probably who? Okay, yeah. So let's let's yeah. get into it. So here's the deal: those words. Antichrist is not used in Revelation. Man of lawlessness isn't used in Revelation. But what we've done is we've taken all those words a lot of times and we've made them synonyms. we made them the same people, okay? Now, if you look in 1 John, where the only place is in 1 John where the Antichrist is mentioned, it says there are many Antichrists and it's anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, most scholars believe that John is speaking to the Ephesians, right? In 1 John, he's the elder in Ephesus. And there was a guy there who was teaching that Christ did not come in the flesh named Serenthus. 
Some people believe that that first century, I mean, it's well known that this guy was a false teacher, okay? Now, we like to say the Antichrist is the same person, again, as the beast, but they're never called that, okay? So, the post-mill belief would say, okay, here's this guy, Serenthus, over here, and that can be anybody who teaches that Jesus doesn't come in the flesh. Now, we get to Revelation chapter 13, and the mark of the beast, it goes through and it talks about this beast. It says there's one beast that comes out of the ocean, and it has like seven, it talks about seven, uh, does it say seven crowns, um, which represent in the post-mill mindset in Amil, the seven hills of Rome, which they were famous for, and they give power and authority to another beast, okay? So who is this beast? It tells us that his number is what? We all know it, 666, right? Now, if I said to you, and you all know this, and um, you know the Latin has uh, numerical equivalents for letters, um, the Jewish letters also have uh, uh, equivalents, letters that are equivalent uh, with numbers, they're numerical. The Greek language is the exact same way. If you look at 666 in the Hebrew language, there's a cryptogram um, where you can just spell it out, and it says, let the reader understand, and 666 spells uh, Caesar Nero. Okay? Now, the post-mill and the amill positions both believe that, based on Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, because John is told to go measure the temple, that this was written before the destruction of the temple. And that most of the things in Revelation are speaking about the destruction of the temple in different ways, okay? Now, here's what's very interesting about that 666 thing. There are some early church textual variants in a few of our manuscripts that are Greek, okay? And in those Greek manuscripts, they say in the Greek language, 616. Now, when you see a variant, you have to ask yourself, was this just a copyist error? Because, you know, there was no printing presses, right, until the 1400s. People are copying them, and sometimes they're in rooms that are dimly lit. And it's a horrible job if you read about a, a copyist in the early church that is writing out the scriptures, okay? It's terrible. And so little errors, little letters here and there would creep in that were wrong. But we know how to, you know, sift those out. It's not saying that the Bible is not the inerrant, infallible word of God. We believe that. No problems. But there were these early variants, 616. Interestingly enough, there's a belief by Dr. Bruce Metzger, who is one of the early, uh, and he's one of the greatest New Testament scholars. 616 in the Greek language spells Caesar Nero in cryptogram. Those are the equivalents in the Greek language. And so there's a belief that they were changed so that the early Greek Christians could read that. I mean, you can find this anywhere. And Bruce Metzger, I mean, a lot of my textbooks, all our textbooks, you know, Bruce Metzger's in the, I mean, he, he was a, I mean, very sound. When it comes guy. to yeah. textual, what we call textual criticism, yeah. which is not critical. It's not criticism in the sense that he's doubting the right. veracity of not God's word, but look, comparing manuscripts, he's probably, yeah. he's probably the number one guy, I mean, yeah. in the last hundred years. Yeah. 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 And he just thought, well, the scribes probably changed this in the Greek so that the Greek readers, when they read it, knew what it was talking about. So there was an assumption in the early church by the Greek writers that what the Jews were trying to communicate is this was Caesar Nero. Now that's just, again, this is the post-mill position. The man of lawlessness, let's get to him. So we did the Antichrist, the beast, now who's the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians chapter 2? And there's big debate about this. 
But if you remember, at the end of the millennium, Satan is to be loosed for a little while. You remember that? At the beginning, he's bound, and here's how he's bound. He cannot deceive the nations anymore. Doesn't mean he's, he can't do other things like the mob boss or whatever else, but in the post and of you, he's bound in the sense that he can't deceive the nations anymore. Well, after the millennium, he's loosed for a little while, okay? And when he's loosed, the belief is, how's he loosed? Well, how is he bound? He's loosed to deceive the nations once again. And during this time, some post-mill believe that during that time, when he's released for a little while, right before the second coming of Christ, that this man of lawlessness will emerge and be a beast-like figure, who the Lord will show up, if you read it in 2 Timothy 2, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he'll show up and he will consume with the breath of the power of his mouth. He will burn him up and he will destroy him in the lake of fire forever. And if you read 2 Thessalonians 1, which talks about the second coming of Jesus, it, it fits perfect into chapter 2 to see the man of lawlessness as this time at the very end of the millennium when Satan is loosed. How, is this just clear to everybody? <laughs> I hope it is. So, I don't hey, know. we got, I know we're... It seems clear up here. Yeah, I don't we got know. a few, few minutes. So yeah. the last few weeks, we've looked at yeah. four different views, yeah. right? We joked about next week as pan-millennialism. Pan-millennialism. Right? Somehow it all pans out, right? Yeah, right. So what does it, but like, what is it? I mean, we've talked about in our conversation, we've had some conversations about how your, your view on these things, your thing, you know, it changes your outlook and how you engage yeah. in culture and how you do missions. So what is, what is this, what does all this matter? Because I mean, if you, if we were to survey the people of this church, right, we would, we would get probably yeah. all four of these. Sure. Views. So sure. what does, I mean, what does it matter? Is this just one of these things we say, well, we just agree to disagree and that's, that's yeah. it. So like maybe on a practical, like yeah. a real practical means, like what is this, what does yeah. it matter? Well, it matters because it's in the scripture. Okay, so you can start. Right. There. It matters because it's in the scripture and because it's the word of God. And we should we should wrestle with these things to understand better and to see the big picture of what God is doing in history. I think it matters number two because in practical ways, um, you know. And I grew up more with this mindset. I, I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you. I was kind of scared whenever I was a kid. I watched the uh, the Left Behind stuff, you know. And I remember like this lawnmower that kept like. You know, the kid was mowing the lawn, and he's gone. And he's, the lawnmower's bumping into the fence, man. Like, that's scary. I remember, I remember as a kid, like, falling asleep on a Saturday, yeah. like, taking a nap and, and waking up, and nobody was in the house, and I <laughs> couldn't hear anything. Out, I, I thought I was left behind. I had yeah. a few of those moments. Now, I'm not scarred because of that, but, uh, and if you believe that view, it's, it's, it's fine. But what can happen, depending upon your view of the future and everything else, I think it can affect your cultural engagement. I'm of the belief that we should be working hard on every single level. And if you, I mean, hopefully I reflect this in my life. I'm involved in a lot of things and I plan on doing that. A lot of people are worried that they're going to get too busy in life. I don't think enough people are worried about not being busy enough for the kingdom. That's just me. Um, I think we need to be busy about God's business, trying to take dominion. And I, and I really feel like I was doing that already as an amillennial and I wasn't living consistently with how I view the world and the effectiveness of the gospel. So I think at a real practical yeah. level, as I look at like what I believe, I want to be involved in things that take that gospel to the end of the earth. That's so I know we, yeah. we watched a, a conversation between two scholars. One was Dr. GK Beale, who is a conservative um, Presbyterian. Yeah. And then uh, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, yeah. who's a Southern, who's a Southern Baptist new Testament scholar. And they, 
they discussed this idea of, and I think I think both of them were kind of they were landing in in amillennial uh, land. Yeah. But they talked about this idea of underrealized, overrealized eschatology and what that means in real practical ways. Yeah. So on one hand, we, we I think we can all agree that there's a sense in which the kingdom is now. Yep. But the fullness of the kingdom still is still to come. How, sure. However, you understand all this, you, yeah. we know that the fullness of the kingdom is is still not here, right. though it's it's breaking in. So there's a sense in which there's underrealized eschatology. What would yeah. that? What what what's sort of that ditch that you can kind of drive into in that end? Yeah, I think underrealized eschatology is like is this ditch that you might fall in if you if you were just kind of like, well, we're powerless. Satan's on the loose and he kind of just has dominion right now in every aspect of life and the world's headed off this cliff. Okay. So it's a, it's I think just that's underrealized. That that under to me that would undervalue the power of the cross and the effectiveness of the gospel as it moves forward. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now on the other side of it, what would you say is overrealized eschatology? Well say over I would say overrealized eschatology is trying to um, trying to create like utopia on earth yes, through like political means. Yeah. Sure. Without without dealing honestly with what the yeah. scripture says about human nature yep. and yep. sinfulness and and yes. and brokenness, yep. to where um, in that case we it becomes about you know uh, social change, the political means, and then we lose we lose we lose sight that yeah. um, of the cross and the yeah. necessity for personal. Yeah. Uh, regeneration, you must be born again. Right, right. Yeah. And, and our kingdom, ultimately, right, is not of this world. It's not of this world. Jesus said that. Our kingdom is not of this world. And at the same time, we work real hard to evangelize this world because it's the only hope yeah. for mankind. Guys, it's 601. Listen, I, we didn't even leave any time for questions, but I, we'll be up here. And if you have some questions, come on up. I, I could just talk about this stuff all night. I hope I didn't make, we didn't make anybody upset with the different viewpoints or anything like that. Um, you know, all of them are very, very strong views. They've got their strengths. I see good things in each one of them. And if you're looking at a list of all the views side by side, there are some, the big picture things um, we all have in common. It's these nuances that kind of carry us off into different strands. But and he, really and each of these views yeah. has big name conservative yep. evangelical scholars that, back, that are does. behind them. It does. And so we have to take each of them seriously. Yes. Yes. And just to like self-like humble, listen, I think I've said it on the podcast. I don't know if I've said it up here, but I started as a premillennial dispensation. I grew up in Southern Baptist life. And then I moved to amillennialism for 16 years. And it's only been about a year, really, probably not even that long that I kind of was like, I really feel like I live more like a post-millennial, post-millennial, that sounded, post-millennial viewpoint and um, I'm, I'm seeing verses a little bit more from those kind of angles. So, so I'm, I say all that to say I'm probably not the guy to follow. Um, I, I may be in the historical pre-meal camp tomorrow, although and it's I, very doubtful. And I would say it's, I, I would say I feel blessed to be yeah. a part of a church to where we can freely yeah. discuss yeah. these things. I, I don't know that, that it may be in, in the decades past, right. If, right. especially maybe among SBC churches, if we've always sort of had this sort of freedom to be able to discuss this. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and, but I think it feels good to say, hey, we can, just op- we can openly yes. discuss these things. And you, you're not exactly sure where you're at right no, now. But no, no. Daniel and I have done this yeah. podcast, and, you know, not one time has that little purple vein thing popped out on anybody's neck. Like, 
we're totally cool with each other. Um, it has been really good. And, and I've learned things. I've learned a lot about the different views. And I hope you all have too. I'm not sure where it goes from here. The boss will decide that. Um, but I would like for us to have some time, hopefully in the future, where we go through more of the questions. Somebody did send in some questions, but I wanted to save those for next week for Daniel to be here too. Did you have something, Nathan? Does that sound right to you? Okay, next week's all Q&A. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this in, actually, will you close this in prayer real quick? Yep. And then you all can, go, but we'll hang tight up here if anybody has any questions. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of, of your return. Father, we thank you because of the work of the Lord Jesus that death has been defeated. And that, uh, and that for believers, Father, death is, is not defeat. Death is, is victory for us. And so we rejoice and we celebrate and we worship you uh, for that. And we look forward to being able to one day see you face to face. Father, when everything that we've gone through in this life is put in into perspective. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you um, through the spirit that is here, Father, amongst the believers that we can freely open uh, and openly discuss these things. Uh, Father, and then I just ask as, as we seek to uh, dig into your word and to, to understand it, Father, your spirit would give us understanding. Uh, and then, Father, may our, our understanding, wherever we, we arrive at, Father, may that compel us towards mission, to c- compel us to take the the gospel message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead to the ends of the earth uh, for your glory forever and ever. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.